And you guys can turn to Matthew 4. We're going to be jumping, uh, jumping from passage to passage this morning. But we're going to begin in Matthew 4. As you approach 2020, what will you do? Let me just say that again. As you approach 2020, what will you do? That's the question that a lot of us are processing through right now, given that we have this oddball week before Christmas and New Year's. Some of us, we have the luxury to plan some things, right? We have the luxury to plan how we're going to diet and how we're going to exercise, how we're going to maybe spend our money in 2020 or maybe plan a particular vacation destination. Or maybe we're thinking about new hobbies or some sort of pleasures that we're going to pursue for 2020. And our mind is sort of caught up in sort of the cycle of thinking through these things because we have a blank slate in front of us, right? We have 2020, we have the new year. But for some of us, it's actually a little more complex. We're going to be thinking through questions like, how will I get by financially? I don't know how I'm going to work those things out this year. Or will my health endure to the end of the year? I'm not in a good place with my health. Or will I still be married by the end of the year? Because I'm having some significant struggles. For some of us, we think, will I finally achieve some stability in my life? Maybe ultimately the question that most of us are asking underneath all the questions is simply, will I just be happy this year? Will this be the year that I achieve some kind of contentment or some happiness in my life? And by the way, these are not insignificant questions, but what will you do with the outcomes? What would God have you devote yourself to, is another way to phrase it, over and above achieving your resolutions? Because God's resolution for your life and for my life, it isn't just financial stability. It isn't physical health. It isn't that vacation spot of our dreams. But there's an enemy who would like your focus to be in full pursuit of those things to the absence of everything else, right? He wants you to believe that personal fulfillment should be your first priority and of first importance. And he has a really old, a super outdated, but highly effective strategy for doing that, right? And we go all the way back to Genesis, back to the beginning to understand what that old and outdated strategy is. When we go back to Genesis 3, we get this picture of the serpent who is embodied by Satan, who approaches Eve, right, in the garden. And his first words to her are, if you remember this, what did he say to her? He said this, he said, did God actually say? It's the first thing out of his mouth to Eve is, did God actually say? And what the serpent did in that moment is that he's done the same thing he's attempted to ever since is, number one, distort what God has said. And number two, distract us from listening to what God has said. And by the way, this is a plan that was hatched and developed just thousands of years ago, but oddly, I mean, this is a plan that has not even received one, like, systems update, right? The work of the devil is to draw you away from worshiping God and to put your hope in other gods that seem faithful, but prove totally fatal in the end. And this is where Jesus Christ 
comes in to the scenario, into the picture. First John 3, 8, John reminds us, he says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. It's not a complicated work, this devil's work, by the way. He hasn't even changed his opening line to Eve. He is still whispering this line, did God actually say? And every time we sin, we're literally saying this. We're literally saying, I don't believe that what God says is best for me is actually best for me. In other words, sin is what happens when we find ourselves saying, well, actually, to God, right? Which is saying more poignantly, God himself is not what's best for me. That's really what it's coming down to when we consider what's being said to us as a way to question what God has already said to us in his word. And so whatever questions that we find ourselves this morning most concerned with, the question that undergirds all other questions in some ways comes in the form of a temptation, which is this, did God actually say? And how do we break that apart is in all these other questions, such as, man, can God be believed? Can he actually be believed? Can God actually be trusted? Is what God said in his word enough to sustain me for the great unknown that is 2020? Will I get to the end of 2020 and be like Eve, having put into practice the pursuit of other trusts? So, let me just give you the end of the sermon here at the very beginning, which is this. You don't need answers to all of your questions as much as you need to love, treasure, and believe God no matter what answers you receive in 2020. More than anything else in the world, you need God's word to bring you back to worshiping God. So the message that I wanted to preach before the ball drops on Tuesday night is this, devote yourself to God by devoting yourself to his word. Let me say it like this, because I think this will just sort of make a little more sense given probably the past month that you've had, like I've had, gorge on God's word in 2020. Gorge on it. Why? Because the aim of the Christian life, the aim of the Christian, the aim for you, if you are somebody who professes faith in Jesus Christ, your aim, whether you know it or not, and if you don't know it, you're going to know it right now, your aim is godliness. Your aim is holiness. The aim of the Christian is godliness. That is the aim. The Apostle Paul tells us this when he wrote to his own mentor, Timothy. This is what he said. Listen to what he said. He said, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now, it's interesting that Paul is not saying don't diet. It's interesting that he just didn't say, you know what, just skip exercise. Because all you need is spiritual nutrients. No, no, he says it's of some value. And by the way, some value is value. So there is some value, he says, to keeping yourself, to keeping yourself physically viable right? But godliness, Paul says, encompasses all other values, which means when it is pursued, all these other things will follow as the result. And most importantly, 
it holds promise. It holds a promise for today, tomorrow, and the life to come, which is coming because the death rate is one per person last time I checked. Welcome to Substance Church, right? So here's what we're going to look at this morning. How does devoting yourself to God's word lead to godliness? Which, by the way, is the highest value of every Christian. We're just going to look at four ways that devoting yourself to God and his word leads to godliness, which, whether you knew it or not, you know it now, is your highest aim and your highest value. The first one is this. It keeps you worshiping God instead of God's. And when I say God's, I mean lowercase g-o-d-s. Let's look at Matthew chapter 4 verses 8 through 10. This is when Jesus was tempted by Satan. And we get to this third temptation in verse 8 when it says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. So this was Satan's last attempt with Jesus to tempt him in hopes that Jesus would give in and cave in to his words rather than the word, right? Verse nine, and he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Again, it's just, it's not, there's not a lot of ingenuity in that with Satan, right? He didn't come up with some really new, amazing plan. He didn't like have like 58 system updates since Eve and said, man, I got something that's going to get Jesus. It's the same thing. It's literally the same thing. And then we get to verse 10. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So Satan tempts Jesus by using the same strategy he used with Adam and Eve, which was to distort God's word and distract Jesus with the gods of this world, which happen to be just things like success and power and riches. So how does Jesus respond? Well, he quotes a verse from the Old Testament from Deuteronomy 6 and sets Satan straight. Now pause and just let that sink in for just a minute. Like pause and just think about what Jesus did when he was confronted by Satan and was offered all the kingdoms of the world. An offer, by the way, which like none of us are going to get. What did Jesus do in that moment? The creator of the universe, who we know had legions of angelic beings at his disposal if he wanted models to us what to do when we are tempted to worship gods instead of God. What does he do? He speaks, he believes, and he obeys God's word. He says, speak, believe, and obey God's word. Is it strange that this was Jesus's strategy to withstand temptation? That's what he did. Does it tell us something about the power of God's word? I think it does. Because what will you do to make sure you keep worshiping God instead of the gods? What will you do? What do you have as a defense? If it's anything other than what Jesus used as a defense, how on earth do you think it could possibly be effective? How could it possibly lead to godliness, which is what we see encompassed in the person 
of Jesus. So one of the ways that we devote ourselves to God and to his word in 2020 is by worshiping God instead of God's. And that's what finding ourselves immersed in his word and having his word committed to our hearts does for us and helps us with when we find ourselves in a very similar situation, but different than Jesus was in. Secondly, devoting ourselves to God and God's word leads to godliness by keeping us discerning the truth. Let's go to Hebrews chapter four. You wanna make a right? Go all the way down to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter four, past the Timothys, past the Titus, past Philemon. I just keep talking because I'm trying to find it. Hebrews chapter four. So devoting ourselves to God and God's word, it leads to godliness by keep us discerning the truth. And here's what the writer of Hebrews says in verse 12. He says this, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, because no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to who we must give account. Now, when you go on social media, what are you doing? Well, you're reading words. When you click on CNN, when you click on Fox News, what are you doing? You're reading words, you're hearing words. The podcasts you listen to are words. The websites, the books, the newspapers, the magazines, the editorials you read, the conspiracies you believe, the conversations you have with your friends and your family, those are words that are being implanted in your head, shaping your heart and affecting the output of your hands. How do we discern the truth in all of that. Hebrews 4.12 reminds us that God's word isn't just another piece of good advice or some self-help tips to guide you through life. What it reminds us of is that God's word is like a weapon, right? God's word is what cuts through the clutter of everything I just described so that you're able to discern what's true when you're drowning in a sea of just deception and false truths. Because listen, in your time of need, you need confidence to draw near to the throne of grace. And you can because you have a high priest who is able to sympathize with your weaknesses. It's God's word that connects you with the Jesus that is able to sympathize with you in your weakness and in your time of need. Because here's the question that faces you right now going into 2020, what will you do to make sure you are able to continue to discern the truth? What will you do? So when we devote ourselves to God through his word, which leads to godliness, it keeps us worshiping God instead of God's. It keeps us discerning truth Thirdly, it keeps us secure against an unseen enemy that we don't give a lot of play to, that we don't talk a lot about. Let's go to Ephesians 6. Let's go back. Ephesians chapter 6. 
right after Galatians, right before Philippians. Ephesians 6. This is what the Apostle Paul writes, picking up in verse 12. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And then he says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. What Paul is trying to instruct the Ephesians church here is this. You need to know who your enemy is. You need to know who your actual enemy is. Your enemy is not the liberal or conservative media. It's not your enemy. It's not social media. It's not your boss. It's not your teacher. It's not your siblings. It's not your spouse. It's not your pastor. It's an unseen enemy that wants you to go anywhere but to God and his word in order to discern the truth. It's an unseen enemy that's working behind the scenes to make sure that you fall. What Paul is saying is that you need a weapon to combat that called the sword of the spirit. You need an offensive weapon because you understand that although the devil doesn't make you do anything, right? You know that old phrase, the devil made me do it? Well, there's just nothing biblical about that. You got enough sin in you that you don't need the devil's help to do anything, right? So although the devil doesn't make you do anything, he does provide temptations for you to fall into. And then what happens after that? After you fall into those things, he accuses you after you fall into them. He attempts to condemn you as a child of God even after you fall into the sins that you've been forgiven for. So the word of God is what places Christians on the offensive rather than keeping them as passive and susceptible observers when faced with the temptation to question and doubt God's motives for them. You need God's word to know that there is an enemy you can't see whose job it is to make sure that you don't see. Because here's the question that faces you at the front of 2020. What will you do to make sure you're kept from the clutches of an unseen enemy who does not sleep? Devotion to God and to his word leads to godliness by keeping you worshiping God instead of God's by keeping you discerning truth, by keeping you secure against an unseen enemy, and finally, by keeping you believing and knowing God. Turn with me to the book of John. You're gonna go left. The Gospel of John, chapter six. This is a conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. John chapter 6, verse 63. I'm going to pick up there. And look what happens. Jesus said, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you 
he says, who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. And then verse 66, it says this, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So the conclusion that Peter comes to here is just astounding for us. He says, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The question that is facing you, and it's always facing you, but since it's almost 2020, let's talk about how closely it's facing you right now because of the things that you're processing. This is one of the questions. What will you do to make sure you keep believing and knowing God? What will you do? Well, what's said here and what we're reminded of by Peter is that it comes by devoting yourself to the words of the one that you belong to, to the one who chose you, to the one who has the words of eternal life. And if you reflect on your own life this morning, maybe you see that God has brought you to the place that Peter found himself in, where you're just tired and you look around and you think, where else is there to go? Who else is there to run to? Where else will I seek illumination? What other gods will I keep worshiping? What other idols will I keep pursuing? Who or what will I become most acquainted with by the end of 2020? If we would only believe what God said through the psalmist in Psalm 119, 105, when he wrote, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. What does that verse say to us? Well, it says that we have feet. And it says that we're on a path. And the assumption that it's making is that we don't know where we're going because we can't see where we're going without the light and truth of God and his word. So devoting yourself to God and to God's word doesn't just happen on its own. It needs to be accompanied by a devotion to prayer. Reading is hearing God's voice. Do you know that? So reading God's word is hearing God's voice, but prayer is the moment that we have God's ear. And here's some things that you should pray for. I want you to grab this. What we included with our bulletin is this rather heavy, massive, cardboard stock Bible reading plan. And I don't know, when I go into a church and they give me something that looks like it's something they're wanting me to do, I usually don't, you know, I don't receive it really well. I saw some of you guys walking in like, oh my gosh, if I touch it, does that mean I have to use it? You know? But let me just step us through what this is and why it's so valuable to us a little bit. What this does is it's a plan that gets you through the entire Bible in a year. The entire Bible, so you get the full diet of God's word in an entire year. 
Now, when you look at something like this and you see the small print, and some of you are already angry because the print is too small, um, you're thinking, this looks overwhelming. How do I get through this? All you've done is given me another thing that's going to sit on my nightstand to fill me with guilt, Ronnie. Thank you. Thank you. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year, right? Um, But let's talk about this a little bit because just to dive into this unaccompanied by prayer is missing the point in a lot of ways. So here's the way that you want to pray. And if you want to write this down, I would encourage you to do that. Because how do we pray when we approach God's word? And are we supposed to pray when we approach God's word? I mean, the answer seems obvious. But before you even open God's word, you should have a moment of praying so that God creates and shapes a heart for you that's able to receive his word, right? So here's some ways that you can pray. Number one, before you open God's word, before you contemplate this big, long, font size five list that I just gave you, pray for desire. Pray for desire. Pray for a heart that is filled with desire, for hunger, for thirst, to read God's word, to do the thing that is of most value to you more than anything else that you might be thinking of and contemplating as we dive into 2020. Pray for desire. Secondly, pray for discipline. Pray for discipline because it takes discipline, right? It's not like this book just gets magically read because you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. You got to set aside the time. You've got to make it a priority, just like you make other things a priority in your life. There are some things in your life that you do without even thinking about it that you never even skip a day on. I could come up with a laundry list of that, but I don't want to do that. But there are some things in your life of which you don't even need to discipline yourself because it's been ingrained into sort of the daily rhythm of your life. So you need to pray that God would give you the discipline so that his word becomes ingrained into the daily rhythms of your life. And then thirdly, pray for delight. You want to have desire. We need to have discipline. To pursue godliness is a discipline. So we need to have discipline to read. But then we also want to pray that as we're reading and as we're disciplining ourselves with new rhythms so that reading God's word becomes ingrained, we want to pray that God gives us a delight for his word. We want to walk away with thankfulness and gratefulness to God. We want to walk away feeling renewed. We want to walk away feeling convicted. We want to walk away becoming something, becoming more like Christ. So pray for desire, pray for discipline, pray for delight. And remember that this is a group project. So our job as the body of Christ is to encourage one another in the word of Christ. It should be a thing that you guys, part of community groups, part of friends, will occasionally sort of go, hey, how are you doing with this? How's it been going? How's it been going with your daily reading? Here's something else I want to encourage you in. Um, We kind of treat God's word the way we treat eating and the way we treat diets in a lot of ways. We feel like if I miss a day, the whole thing's blown to smithereens, right? Instead of looking at it a little more holistically, right? Because there's a lot of condemnation when it comes to Christians reading God's word, right? So what we wanna do is we wanna treat it like food in the sense that, hey, 
If you're like me, if you forget to eat breakfast, which by the way has never happened to me one time in my life, but if, if you forget to eat a meal, you don't just say, well, I guess I can't eat the rest of the day now. But we treat God's word like that. So we look at this plan kind of legalistically. We look at it as something that is pass, fail, win, lose, when it's just meant to give you just some guidelines and a grid and a map for how to continue to walk through God's word as God walks with you through his word. So the whole point is to look at this list as a guide to get you immersed. And you know what? You're going to miss some days. Big R here misses some days. We miss some days. God is not up there going, you, I, it's unbelievable to me that it's January 15th and you've already missed two days. It's so disappointing. I don't even know if I can continue walking through. You, you know what? Go back, catch up, or, or else we're just not going to be talking for the next like two months. Like that is not God. He is not a school teacher, sorry, Ashley Powell, that is just going to be holding these things against you as a way to grade you. Ashley doesn't do that with her students. I, you know, I feel really bad about what I just said, obviously. So again, look at this thing as a grace of God to you to know about the God who knows you. Treat it like food because reading God's word is how we know the God we are known by. It's how we savor the security of identity that we have in Christ. And by the way, that secure identity that we have in Christ, it affects everybody else around us. It's not just merely a solo activity. Jackie Hill Perry, she made this comment. She said, what you are with God affects how you are with other people. In other words, your devotion to God's word will affect your dealings with God's people. So if you have sticky dealings with God's people, you have to ask yourself, well, how am I doing in God's word? Because those things are like inextricably linked, Right? But God's word is what gives us our identity as God's people. You know, a lot of us, we work jobs that require us to wear, you know, a uniform. Some of us have to wear a badge. For me, it would be a black shirt and a white clerical collar, which, as you know, I wear like all the time. Um, but one thing about a work uniform is that when you're not working, you don't typically wear the uniform. Right? It would be strange if some of you came to church wearing like your Chipotle apron if you work at Chipotle. You know what I mean? You're, I just like the apron. You know, I'm not working for another four days, but I just like it. Like that would just be unusual for that to happen. But here's the thing. When you became a Christian, it was the flip of that. You are now forever, as the prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah 61.10, this is what he said. You are forever clothed with the garments of salvation and you're covered with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest and a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Here's what I mean by that. You're not just a Christian on Christian days of the week like Sunday and then quickly change out the minute you return home or to work or to school. That's not your identity anymore. You are a son. You are a daughter of God, a status bought by Christ's broken body and shed blood on the cross. An identity that can never be taken away. A clothing of righteousness that you can never shed. But it's who you are. And it's who you are by knowing the God that you are known by. By identifying with the God who identifies you as his loved and cherished child. 
All right, so here's some closing thoughts that I hope are helpful for us. As we look at this list, as it seems a little overwhelming, you're not doing God any favors when you approach him. So let's have a real, let's have a, let's, let's refresh our, our hearts and our minds about who God is right now and his relationship to us in a helpful way. Let's put ourselves in the place that we actually are and God in the place that he is, okay? That's what I'm gonna do right here. You are not doing God any favors when you approach him. You are not helping him when you open his word. You are not making his day better because you're reading his word. You're not giving him the attention he's lacking. You're not giving him the affirmation that he is just dying to receive from you by opening his word. You're not reminding him that he has some friends. God is totally complete without you, without me, without us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You don't complete God by any of your actions toward him. That should relieve some sense of burden from you. No, what's actually happening is that God is the one saying this. Now listen, this is how God, this is how God deals with us in his word. He is saying, hey, I'm right here. He's saying, hey, I'd love to talk to you whenever you're ready. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to encourage you. I'd love to walk with you through whatever is troubling you. God is saying, I want you to know what I'm thinking about you. And I wrote 66 books to let you know my thoughts and to let you know just how committed I am to your godliness, which by the way is directly connected to your happiness. That is what God is doing right now as you look at this very heavy, long Bible reading plan. That's his position with you. That is his posture with you. That is his heart for you. Psalm 40 verse five says, you have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. And then he says this shocking line. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Do you know that the thoughts that God has towards you are so many that they are unable to be counted and unable to be communicated? That's the God who is gonna be walking with you as you devote yourself to him through his word, to know him as you are known by him. Because this is a God of heaven. He's not like the gods that we are trying so hard to stop serving but keep scraping away at our hearts. This is a God of heaven. This is a God who walks with you. This is a God whose words are a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. Because listen, there is darkness and there is fog ahead of you in 2020. What will you do for light? Who will you go to for discernment? Who will you believe? Let's pray. God, we thank you that you left us
not alone, but with your word. And so, Lord, we pray with this relationship that we have with your word, which can be so difficult. It can be such a slog. We are so resistant to it. We feel like it's ineffective. We feel like it's boring. We feel like it's reading words that were written so long ago that how on earth could they possibly have any relevance for my life today? And even though we would say, we are your people, we bear the name of Christ, we are Christians, we still approach your word this way. We don't see it as the words of eternal life. We still see that there are other places we can go, that there are other gods that are worth worshiping more than you, that there are other ways for us to discern truth, that there are other enemies Lord, I pray that we would believe and know you as a church this year in 2020, that you would open our hearts to your word because it's how we know you and it's how we know the depths of how we are known by you. So God, we pray for desire. We pray for discipline. And we pray for delight, God, because this is about a heart posture in us that needs transformation. And so God, I pray that as we carry this list home with us, Lord, that it doesn't become an occasion for condemnation, that it doesn't become the occasion for legalism or feeling like we're being judged by you, but that this is what you've given us to show us that we are loved by you. Help us to approach this rightly and continue to change and transform our hearts. We also understand that this is a process and we want to be more engaged with your word by this time next year than, than we are today. And Lord, we thank you that you have compassion on us, that you understand our weaknesses. You understand busy schedules. You understand distractions. You are sympathetic to the things that weaken us. Thank you for being that kind of a God. And Lord, may you continue to transform us through your word as we commit ourselves to knowing you as deeply as we are known by you. We thank you for this gracious truth this morning. In Christ's name we pray.